Welcome to the third program in the series of Peaks and Troughs. This week we're taking the subject of troughing literally. I'm going to give you a user's guide to avoiding wine fraud and maybe diversifying into a few related subjects along the way. Wine fraud is a prevalent problem these days, not just in China, which is where we think it's going on, but actually all over the world, especially Europe and, dare we say it, the United States. In fact, there have been several colourful court cases last year and ongoing. So in order to hear all about how to tell your Lafitte's from your Petrus, did I pronounce that right? Here's Jeannie Cho Lee, who has the impressive accolade of being the first Asian master of wine, or should that be mistress, and the professor of wine at Hong Kong Polytechnic U. I asked her to explain what's going on, starting with the most simple form of fraud, which is messing about with wine labels and changing the letters. Instead of using the P, they would use Ben folds. Ben so, folds. With a B. And that would, um, from far away, look exactly like a Penfolds brand, but looking closely, you can tell that it's actually not the same. And legally, I think it's up to Penfolds to bring that um, case up as you know part of copyright infringement. If the design and logo, if they've trademarked it properly in China, uh, can be a legal case. But for, for smaller companies who don't have that kind of legal protection, there's absolutely uh, no way for someone who uses a name that they alter, right? Right. So, uh, it's just slightly, but with all the other visuals looking very similar. So that's one level of, of wine fraud. Um, the one that we see most often here in Hong Kong and, and uh, China are the ones that actually take a, a, a little bit of scrutiny usually by a wine professional, to look at the label. So what, what are we looking for in these ones? Yeah, we're looking very closely at how the bottle and the packaging, meaning the label, the capsule. What's the capsule? The capsule is the part on top that, that goes over the the um, the lip and the, and the neck of the bottle. The silver foil part. Exactly, right. exactly. And you can tell from the capsule exactly what era uh, it would have come from. Right. So, and you look. You also look at the paper type and the print that can t- give you an indication of where and when that label was printed. And it right. takes a, a magnifying lens uh, to look very closely to see if they were done by computer, whether they were done by hand, whether they were using certain types of ink, and there are specialists who are able to look at labels themselves and also even date the bottle itself to a certain you know, decade or two. So you cannot be absolutely precise, but you can have an idea whether it's actually a, a bottle from the 2000s, but, you know, um, that on the label, it says 1945, for example. Right. So you, that that kind of um, fraud is very common. But again, on the other hand, uh, you have very sophisticated fake wines where a lot of the bottles are refilled. So we've had problems. Um, where do they get the bottles? Oh, all over the restaurants and Hong Kong hotels as well. And now that um, people are more aware that this refilling is taking place, that um, you know, a lot of the restaurants are actually smashing and breaking the bottles so they cannot be reused. Oh, really? So if you have a good bottle of wine, you can expect 
you don't get the bottle to take it home with you. <laughs> you can if you're the one who brought the wine, but most likely you'll be leaving it at the restaurant. And I think what happens is that these bottles are resold in the market and the going rate for a good Cru Classé Bordeaux is around 500 yuan. And for an empty bottle? For an empty bottle. And if you're looking at a specific top vintage, like a 1982 or a 61 or a 45, then you're looking at a, a bottle that can be close to 10,000 oh for an goodness. empty bottle because a, a refilled bottle would be you know, double or three times that. And even for a professional, if you have a refilled bottle, it would be very difficult to tell from the packaging itself unless somebody opened it and let you try the, the wine um, and and you know, authenticated by purely on taste and experience, it would be very difficult to, to tell. So that kind of fraud is a very sophisticated level, and that is also happening. Right. Now, I think in New York there was a specific case, wasn't there, of, a, of, yes. of this? There was uh, uh, an Indonesian-Chinese man by the name of Rudy Kurniawan, who was arrested by the FBI last year and accused um, he has been sent to prison and told to pay millions of dollars in fines because when the FBI raided his home, they found, they actually found imitation labels, but hundreds of them of the top wines around the world. They found uh, corks, they found branding equipment, they found empty bottles. I mean, you know, all the material that one would need to... And he had been collecting these from restaurants, I believe. Yes, yes, he, for years... Um, somewhere sometime between 2006 to about 2010, it seems as though he's been collecting these empty bottles from all over. But he himself was actually a, a very big buyer, um, uh, you know, of, of fine wines. So a genuine buyer. A genuine buyer, but it's you know, eventually he became uh, a kind of I would say you know uh, a sophisticated. Um, a bartender, cocktail maker of the top concoction of, you know, of wines from certain vintages, because um, one of the things that the FBI found was a recipe book <laughs> on how to make <laughs> the perfect, you know, 1961 Petrus or uh, some amazing bottle that went for tens of thousands of U.S. dollars. He he had a formula for how to how to make that. And the reputation also is that he had a very good palate. Mm, so uh, a, a good taster gone bad. Yes. And then what was the story with the Domaine Romani Conti? I think there's another uh, good yarn there, isn't there? Well, Domaine Romani Conti was one of the wines that uh, came up during Rudy Kurnion's trial and was found to be fake. And um, the uh, the owner, Aubert de Villan, actually testified that uh, that bottle was fake. But there was another case uh, by Domaine Ponceau, and this was Laurent Ponceau and his incessant crusade for, you know, um, uh, for uh, trying to be a champion uh, against fake wines, really. And mm. he, he noticed that his wines of Claude de la Roche was coming up for auction in Acre. And Acre being one of the premier wine auctions. Yes, yes. And he, and he called Jean Capon, who's the CEO and president, and said, uh, we never made these wines. So, so these cannot be genuine. Please take them off the auction list. And um, just to make sure that it wasn't going to be put up for auction, uh, Laurent Ponceau flew to New York and uh, 
sat in on the auction and made sure that uh, the lots didn't come up. So that was pulled off. Uh, again, there are you know lots of other kind of isolated cases like this where uh, either the um, the the domain's owner or some sort of very savvy um, uh, wine commentator would note on a auction catalog mm. these these wines don't seem fem- you know authentic and right. uh, auction houses are pretty good about that they're now they don't want to take any risks or tarnish their reputation so they take it off the auction lot but these do happen mm. on mm. a regular basis. Jeannie mentioned wine auctions. And in recent years, they've become an increasingly popular way for people who are serious about their wine to acquire modest collections. One of the most colourful characters in this business, certainly in Hong Kong, is Aussie wine expert Simon Tam. He now works for Christie's and explains how to buy wine securely at auctions and says that he would never, ever sell a dodgy case. Primarily. Wine auctions represent and bring forward to the market wines that are not readily available in the general marketplace, from supermarkets, fine wine is, merchants. Is that because they come direct from the vineyard? Some come direct from the vineyards, but certainly some come direct from the wine lovers and collectors who have purchased directly from the vineyards. So the provenance and the storage are absolutely impeccable. And at Christie's, this is something that we hold extraordinarily dear and true to our hearts. Can you just explain what provenance means for people who might not understand that term? Well, provenance very simply is how the bottle of wine has been brought up. We can all aspire children to go Harvard MBA, but (laughs) few of us have that opportunity. For us at Christie's, it is very, very important that we make sure that all our wines are brought up and they are temperature controlled, stored, and they are loved and they are taken care of. There are documentations and the wines are the best of its very, very type uh, in the world. At the end of the day, you can hold up two bottles of wine. They both, both says uh, 1982 Chateau Lafitte. But the reality is that if they have well travelled, with more Asian miles than you and I combined, <laughs> they will taste different than one that has actually happily rested in a perfect cellar or cellarage for all of its life. So it's all about the upbringing of the wine. They were all grown and brought up and given birth from prime locations and some of the most celebrated sites, the Lafitte and Latour and more recently, uh, the famed Burgundy vineyards, Chambertin, Romani Conti. But how are they actually elevated how are they actually grown and brought up? That is the most important thing. And you know what? It is really important because for two bottles of wine, they look exactly the same on the outside. Once you pour the cork, they would taste. They could taste so different. Just because they've been kept at different temperatures in different conditions. Totally. And that is really the expertise that I, as a wine lover, and uh, you know, I'm one of the worst wine lovers in the world because I am absolutely fastidious about details. Uh, as a wine lover, as a head of wine for Christie's, I know what makes a difference. And so I would urge all our friends out there who are looking to purchase wines from an auction to deal with good companies. Right. Make sure they understand where the wines are come from and don't just buy face value, oh, Lafitte or Latour, 85, 2000 vintage but really understand where the ones are coming from. Right. Now, talk a bit about online auctions. How do you check out provenance and all that with online auctions? That is a very, very good point. Online auction is all about convenience in some cases, but more importantly, it's all about just making sure that the right bottles fit the right price. But especially buying online, you need to buy from reputable producers, 
uh, in especially reputable auction houses. And how can you tell if it's a reputable producer? Well, at Christie's, we have 260 plus years of reputation to fall back on. And I think that for any consumer looking for that special bottle, whether you're buying online or in a live auction or in three absentee bidding, these are on the telephone with one of our staff. They can help you place a bid in a live auction situation. The most important thing is make sure that you have a reputable auction house. And it is all about that reputation because we are all about quality. And the most important thing really is, is, is to make sure that what comes up uh, on the table when you're opening it at your next dinner party tastes the right way. Now, we all know about the story with Acker and uh, Domaine Romani Conti selling the wine that they said they'd never made. Was it Domaine Romani Conti? Uh, there were a number of uh, difficult situations okay. up there. Now, if you know that wine is coming up that you know could not be what it says on the label, what would you do? Well, I think, um, you know, wine lovers around the world are in increasingly becoming extremely savvy. And I think those situations that you mentioned are becoming less and less of an occurrence because, you know, it's all about providing the best service, providing the best drinking wine at a fair price. But if you know that you've got a dodgy case coming up, will you auction it? Absolutely not. Well, that's nice to know, Simon. Certain brands and sizes of bottle are more likely to be counterfeited than others. But Jeannie says that it can be a real challenge to spot a ringer. Well, at the, at the high end, that are very difficult to tell. You're talking about the really big um, cru classé especially the first growth names like Mouton, Margot, Lafitte has, has had has a very bad reputation for having tons of fakes in the market, especially in mainland China, when right. Lafitte was the darling wine of the Chinese elite um, from about 2008 until 2000 and end of 2011. So that was that's, um, that you have to be very careful of, especially in mainland China. Um, but I think that if you're looking at wines, even at the everyday drinking end, there has been cases of just basic Chianti or Mouton Cadet, a big brand name by Mouton, uh, of these wines being faked as well. And even the local wine uh, companies like Zhang Yu has, has, has had... Um, you know, companies trying to fake Zhang Yu red wines in China. Is so, there really enough profit in it to make it worth doing at that level? I think it it, it must be. Otherwise, can you imagine? You wouldn't do it. Yeah, I mean, because you will obviously get um, get sent to jail for doing something like this. You're taking that kind of risk. And it must also be relatively easy to do. So if you look at a lot of the um, cases that have come up in mainland China, they've actually centered around winemaking uh, provinces where they have very easy access to empty bottles, right. to labels, to printers, to corks. Um, and so Shandong province has had a lot of cases where uh, the the mainland police had to go in and, and, and basically arrest a whole ring of, of people who were producing fake wines. That was Jeannie Cho Lee. Now, I said we'd go off at a few tangents on this program, and here's the first one. Have you ever wondered why wine tastes really strange on aircraft? I asked Simon Tam, who's clearly flown the extra air miles to find out. That's a, that's a really, really interesting question. And I'm so glad that I have the answer because my very dear friend Simon 
who works with Cathay Pacific, took us all on for a ride, literally. We went from Hong Kong to Osaka, Osaka and back, and we tasted... Was this a day trip? It was a day trip. Woo. It was fantastic, absolutely fabulous. But we tasted, in a most scientific way, wines on the ground, on the plane, when we land, when we came back, on the plane, and when we land again. Right. And what is really quite a revelation is that a combination of number of factors. The fact that the humidity on the plane could be as low as 18%. 18%? That's really, really dry. And it drives your sensory membrane, and that, you know, limits the perception of flavors, particularly fruit flavors. So your nose is too dry to, to, to experience taste. Yeah. and appreciate it. And then on the plane, how often do we ask for a blankie? Often. Because the low temp, because the, the cabins are quite low mm. uh, in temperature, cold. quite cold, yeah. And so the combination of our nasal passages having its pe- this ability to pick up uh, aromas mm. reduced, and the low temperature, which we know when you serve a red wine, a good white wine, too cold, you don't get so much flavors. Mm. These are the reasons why that we don't get the full utility and the full satisfaction of a wine. Apart from looking at the label, whoa, Dom Perignon, love it. But, you know, these are the reasons. And I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done uh, moving forward for business class, well, even in kettle class, when you get on the plane and turn, le- turn right, you know what, we deserve it all. Do you ever do that, Simon? Absolutely. Simon, I'm sorry, but I don't believe you. When was the last time you flew economy? I don't think they've served Dom Perignon down the back for a very, very long time. We couldn't do a programme about wine without talking to a Frenchman. Thibaut Mathieu hails from the Rhone Valley and works for long-established wine merchants Corny and Barrow. Now, the French are pretty famous for being patriotic. So what does he think of the latest trend for Chinese businessmen to buy up vineyards in France? Pretty proud. It means that we have good vineyards uh, producing very, very good wine. Um, it happens um, several years ago with Japanese uh, uh, entrepreneurs coming to Bordeaux and buying vineyards. Um, we had recently people buying vineyards in, in Burgundy as well. Um, I I say pretty proud because it means that um, our vineyards are, are, are interesting and producing good wine and are famous the world around. Um, I don't think they will; they are stealing anything, and it's probably in fact very good for our own economy because um, those um, investors comes with money, uh, uh, try have the, the the will to keep uh, the tradition um, uh, in place and in fact uh, rejuvenate it. So they usually uh, invest in the vineyards, they invest in the uh, wineries, um, in the production line, and they try to keep it um, as stunning as it was, or trying to bring it back to its uh, stunning position as it was uh, many, many years ago. Good. So you see it as a positive thing that 60 of your vineyards are now in Chinese hands. Uh, Yes, if I'm correct... There's about 14,000 properties in Bordeaux, so 60, it's a drop in the water. A drop in the water. Okay, so now let's address the problem of Bordeaux. Is it over for Bordeaux, do you think? Um, Not what we see on a daily basis. Um, Our clients are still asking uh, for Bordeaux. Uh, What is uh, on the downside, what is uh, not so active as it was, 
three to five years ago is the crazy buying of very expensive wine that were, that were going to China. Uh, but no, Bordeaux is definitely definitely not others. Uh, uh, mature vintages uh, are in demand. Uh, we sell that uh, every day. Um, it's probably the the, the investment uh, that, that is disappearing. And uh, now we still have the real drinker, the real consumer, keep, keep on buying uh, Bordeaux wine. Well, Thibault thinks it isn't all over for Bordeaux. But to get the definitive view on this, I think we need to find out where the rich folks are spending their money and what they're spending it on. So I'm off to the Crown Wine Cellar in Chuson Hill where the guardian of $2.5 billion worth of fine wines, Greg de Ebb, is waiting to tell me. What are his members buying and drinking? Interestingly, there's been quite a shift from uh, the, the Bordeaux focus that we've seen over the last couple of years. Right. People are really um, moving towards Californian wines. We see a very, very strong um, impetus towards the older Californian wines, the ones that are very rare from the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. Um, wines like uh, Heights Martha's Vineyard from the great vintage of 1974 has gone from one or 200 US dollars to, I've seen one that was sold recently for 3,000 mm, wow. US dollars. So the markup on these great collectibles really has uh, been quite significant. But Again, people are, are celebrating them. So we're seeing it bring a special bottle evenings. We before used to be 95% dominant on mm. Bordeaux. Now we're seeing about 50% Bordeaux, around 30% of these great Californians, and 20% Burgundy. Ah, so, so Burgundy is really making headway. Burgundy has really made headway. And again, it's interesting because the supply of Burgundy obviously is very small. Mm. Um, the supply of Napa Valley wines is very small. Mm. Um, both of them insignificant in comparison to Bordeaux. So um, people are, are, are diversifying to these, these smaller, more focused regions. And I'm very sure we'll start seeing Rhone coming up. I'm very sure we'll see Piedmonte. Uh, from northern Italy, uh, where the great Barolo wines are made, um, and also places like Spain. Uh, we, as you will see, part of the empty bottles here, a number of them are great Spanish Riojas right. from the 1920s and 1910s. Mm. These are wines that are not particularly expensive. They hold their age incredibly well. So really beautifully interesting wines. Right. But at the same time, they're not going to, to break your bank. Right. Now, looking here at all these wonderful empty bottles, you're clearly not worried about breaking them. <laughs> no, no. This, you know, there, there's a lot uh, that's being said at the moment about um, this great fraudulent society that's that's going on in, in mainland China. And to be fair, it, it does exist. But it is pretty much isolated in China. So um, we're not getting fake bottles in Hong no, Kong? No, it's, they, they're not coming from China into Hong Kong, um, hmm. simply because you can sell a bottle of wine in China at at least 100% the price that you can get for it in Hong Kong. Um, on top of that, the on average, the, the Chinese um, fine wine enthusiast is not as well... Uh, uh, versed as as the fine wine enthusiasts in right. Hong Kong, so therefore your chance of getting away with a fake are far easier in the mainland than they are here. So logically, why would you take something you can sell for more in the mainland to somebody who knows less and try and bring it across the border into Hong Kong? So the, tell uh, me, tell me something, Greg. Yeah. Who were the first people to fake wine? Be honest. Well, th this this is the great story. The only fakes that we have in Hong Kong, if there are any 
come from Europe and America. Really, you know, the Europeans were by far and away the best counterfeiters in the world, not the Chinese. Really, if, if you think 15 years ago there was no Chinese wine counterfeiting market at all, and yet there were so many counterfeits throughout the world. You know, the great story is is 1945 Mouton, great vintage, great wine. When it turned 50 years old, and 50th anniversary of the 45 uh, uh, vintage. They reckon in that year alone, more 1945 Mouton was consumed than was ever produced in the 1945 vintage. So all the 45s that are still out there at the moment, and all the 45s that were consumed before the 50th anniversary, combined with the 50th anniversary, you can imagine just how much 45 Mouton has been produced. And this is not from China. So this, this was this could even have been an inside job. You know, I I think probably more somebody slightly outside of of Brazil, but surely that they, they would have had access to the labels because you weren't able to mass produce labels in this, those days. This was where the great beauty um, of counterfeiting in the old days came from.、Um, a lot of these were were printed incredibly were, were with incredible care and with incredible. Knowledge and foresight. The same paper was used.、Uh, ruffling effects were used. Aging effects were used. And give these guys their credit. They knew which bottles to use. They they may have had access to the corks. That's for sure. Because some of these great fakes are carrying even vintage dated corks.、Um, the foils that they used. They must have had access to at least the general foils that were used on all the wines. They were damn good. And a lot of these, our great Belgium friends, well known for being outstanding counterfeiters, long, long before we had Rudy Kurwan and all of these great court cases in the U.S.、Uh, these guys are good, really good, and they did some amazing things. But they were caught. These other counterfeiters never been caught. Always under the radar, and they've sustained incredible lifestyles. Just by keeping this going and churning it out to all of our greatest wine collectors and connoisseurs in Europe, really, and America. So it's a little bit of ha ha on you because there's a fair amount of、um, condescending looks coming in our direction at the moment, and I feel it's a little rich. It's a bit of the pot calling the kettle black because this has been going on for a long, long time and far better done. That was Greg De Ebb, who runs Crown Wine Cellars. It's easy in Hong Kong to get the impression that China is the king of faking just about everything, but actually, we've learnt this week that the counterfeiters started and indeed continue to be far better at it in Europe and America. We're nearly out of time this Saturday morning, and I've really enjoyed talking to our wine experts, Jeannie Cho Lee, Simon Tam, Thibault Mathieu, and of course Greg. Next week, we're going to be taking off and talking about all things aviation, from pilot training. To airline safety, to budget airlines, and yes, that third runway. From me, Anna Healy Fenton. Have a fantastic week. Bye for now. Let's misbehave.